You are about to know the thrill of seeing that which has never been seen before. You are about to enter a beautiful, exciting, wonderful new world. For the first time in history, you'll see... A new Pontiac! And the sedan! Oh, it's just wonderful! And it's ours? No, it's ours, all right. Come on! There are few things considered more all-American than the automobile. They're right up there with baseball, jazz, bald eagles, and a blinding sense of superiority. Unfortunately, I have to confess, I loathe the automobile. And not just for things like their environmental impacts, the danger they are to pedestrians and other drivers, and all that stuff. It is their physical essence that infuriates me. The constant guzzling of gas, how you have to change the oil, the licenses, the registration, the insurance. It's all just more work to me. Lo, the poor automobilist, equipped with a machine of uncertain temper, beset with laws to impede his progress, and yet king of the road, master of all he surveyed. A car is a ticking time bomb a radioactive talisman slowly poisoning me, which will one day, half-life run out, collapse in on itself and either kill me or force me to empty my bank account to salvage it. And yes, if you regularly take care of a car that is well-made, it can last a long time with minimal maintenance. However, unfortunately, this has not been my experience My experience with cars has been rife with confusion, reckless disregard, and disappointment. It's also indicative of a lot of the struggles I have with things beyond the car itself. Things like the bare minimum of self-care, maintaining relationships, and being honest with yourself and others. And it's all bound up in the story of my first car. The Ur car. As I was thinking through this, I knew there would be at least one other person who would understand precisely where I was coming from, who shared some of my feelings toward the automobile. Uh, I hate it. That's my older brother, Brayden. Can, can you take me back to the moment where like, you drove by yourself in your own car for the first time? I mean, it was a huge moment. Yeah, that very first time. It still takes me back like thinking about it. <laughs> it was a Dodge Neon, and it was like Dave Coulier colored. That's what I would call this car. I remember, like, that's the car I was going to get, right? And so I had it all picked out. I had my, like, little iPod plugged into, like, the tape deck. I didn't have a CD player. Um, it was just, like, a tape deck, and then the tape deck had the wire thing, and so you could play that. And I was like, the first song I listen to when I get into my new car is going to be because I'm driving a Dodge Neon. And I, I named him Leon. So me and Leon the Neon are going to listen to Neon by John Mayer. And <laughs> first of all, still a good song. I contend it. Like if I were to go back to Hull Johnson Road in Grapevine, Texas, and drive up and down that like hilly part, I can still hear like, she's always buzzing just like Neon, Neon. And just cut the part that she's always buzzing like Neon. Neon. 
But it's so good. It kind of builds up to that moment too, because it is like a rite of passage. You like have to study and take tests and then you like go and do the exam and all of that business. And then you finally get it. And there's for everybody has that moment of like, now this is my first drive by myself. And like, it's a big deal, especially at that age. I think especially like there are a lot of people that build up to that. Like, I don't think we're special in in that way. Like we waited any longer, but there was a special set of circumstances and sort of <laughs> things we had to go through in order to get the keys to a car. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could if you could speak on that. I, I assume you're referring to Dr. Dad's driving school. I think that's what you're alluding to. Is that right? For anyone who is not familiar, what is Dr. Dad's driving school? Dr. Dad's driving school was a curriculum that was developed solely by our father of like <laughs> the things that you needed to be able to do in order to like be a responsible car owner. I think that was the the like main thrust of it. Like we both did driver's ed. You have to in the state of Texas do some form of officially Yeah, documented driver's education. It is operated by the state. Yeah. This was on top of that. Yeah, so this was <laughs> this was additional. This was supplementary. It was like very serious. He like sat me down and was like, "Okay, now Brayden, you know, having a car is a big, a big responsibility. So I want to make sure that we do that. And he slid this piece of paper across the table at me. And on it, I see this like Microsoft Word list. Like it's like Clippy's like, it looks like you're inventing a driving curriculum from scratch for your children. I think it was like Ariel, Dr. Dad's driving school, space, one period. Know how to change a tire. And, and that was kind of the encapsulation of like the, like, I think that was the spirit of Dr. Dad's driving school is like, these are the things they're not going to teach you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and, and, and like, to his credit, like, I know how to change my own tire. And like, I've done it multiple times. Yes. But then there were other things like, like, we had to go on a drive with him. And I remember specifically, like, during, during one of these drives, dad being like, now, Braden, I just want you to know uh, you're, uh, you turned your turn signal on about 75 feet before the turn. And actually, you're supposed to be doing that uh, about 100 feet. Okay, so you want to make sure let's do it again. I remember this moment 100% because it is the perfect distillation of who dad was. Like if you could capture his essence in some sort of quantum keepsake, it would be that moment. And it was like, I had gotten the car. The car was mine. But dad was like, well, we still have to do this. This is part of the deal that was in the contract. We didn't even talk about the fact that there was a contract yet. Oh my God. <laughs> so the contract was, it was as a separate document, as I recall, after we completed, there was like check marks or initials maybe on the, on the, on the list. I think it, we got it notarized. I don't know. It may or may not have been notarized. I know that I had to print my name and sign my name 
and date it. And I think our mom acted as a witness. And then dad also signed his name and did, and, and the terms of the con, <laughs> which is wild, by the way. I, uh, mm, okay, anyway, the contract stipulated, if we completed Dr. Dad's driving school, then dad would buy the first car and pay for it and there, there was an exchange of responsibilities so like we had to pay for like gas and oil changes and stuff like that but the understanding i think was that like anything major that went wrong ostensibly was to be paid by him that's the document i signed now whether whether or not that ended up actually happening is another question entirely Just to clarify, my brother and I's parents divorced when I was about four and he was about eight or so. So agreements like this were not uncommon in our house. Thursday nights and every other weekend were for our dad. We spent the rest of the time with our mom, and as it would turn out, she then bore the brunt of things like school supply costs, us asking for a little cash to go see a movie with our friends, things like that. Time with dad was dad time. So she stipulated, and our dad agreed, that when we turned 16, he would be responsible for getting my brother and I each a car. Not a fancy car, but a functioning automobile, ostensibly. Thus, the Dr. Dad's driving school contract was born. After passing his exam at the age of 16, my brother was given Leon the Dodge Neon the Dave Coulier-colored key to the world. There were two cars, actually. This happened twice, because I got rear-ended, as you remember, in Leon the Neon. But the second car, after Leon the Neon, was Hocus the Focus, and that was the process that I really remember. What was different between those two experiences, but between the, the two cars? Leon the Neon was the first car. Hocus the Focus was my first, like, serious relationship. And it was highly dysfunctional. Hocus was a hunter green death trap. A 1998 Ford Focus special edition that I rode to middle school in every morning, fearing for my life. I'm pretty sure like when we bought the car, the weather stripping wasn't even on on the passenger side door. So like from the beginning, it leaked. So like what would happen was it would like rain and then on the passenger side door, like water would accumulate inside and then freeze to the inside of the windshield. And because windshield scrapers are convex, the scraper will do nothing to the concave frozen ice. So like what you have to do is just turn on your car's heater and then melt the ice. So like, there goes me being on time to first period. You can't just wake up earlier. What am I in the army? If you drove too fast in Hocus, like I think above 75, the car would just start to like shake really heavily to the point where I was like, oh, the bolts are getting unscrewed. I must slow down. Then the windows started falling. <laughs> You'll be driving along, be bopping along, and then you'll try to like roll up and down your window, and then all of a sudden you'll hear like, eh, uh, uh, and then it just kind of like falls down into the door. 
And then it's just sitting there kind of like half in cockeyed looking at you like, what are you going to do? Well, what did you do? Immediately, I was like, well, I know what to do when a window breaks in a car. You fix it with clear packing tape. So I just like, I just like put the tape on the door. And I remember doing like five little strips. It took me a while to kind of perfect it. But it was like five strips that went up and down vertically north south on the window and then would tape onto the inside so i had like like a little flying buttress system and uh thinking like you know what at least it looks kind of chic and that happened to multiple windows oh yeah well like the first one eventually we got fixed then progressively as this whatever it is that's causing it like the first one goes and then the passenger side goes and then all of a sudden because you're driving around in texas in the middle of the summer you got to roll the windows down and the back ones start to go and for some reason only the first window actually got fixed and the rest of them clear packing tape why was that? What cuz cuz based on the contract it seems like that would be something that would've been fixed. Well, you know, that remains a question to this day. Why weren't the windows fixed? And I don't mean to take anybody to task here, all right? I've got bigger fish to fry. But it it is true that Hocus the Focus and I had a contentious relationship due in, in no small part to Contract violations, let's say. A sort of a stalemate of care. (laughs) So we've talked about your, you know, the variety of your cars. Um... And which is odd because I have an You had a lot like spooky synchronicities. It's true. So it's my sophomore year in high school and I'm about to get my driver's license and I'm expecting because my father has told me before I will get a car when I do. And I am so excited to have this freedom. But there was one trial I had yet to endure. The gauntlet of Dr. Dad's driving school. I loathed this process, but I did it. I learned how to change my own tire and check my oil. I parallel parked and drove on the highway and three-point turned. And in the end, I got a phone call. I remember I was getting dressed for a shift at my first ever part-time job at the Cinemark Tinseltown Discount Movie Theater when my flip phone vibrated. At the other end of the line, my dad said, I've got something for you. I had been dreading this shift like I did all of my terrible part-time jobs. But suddenly I was filled with electric energy. I had my mom drop me off at the dealership on the way there, and in my much-too-large double XL, cloudy with a chance of meatballs polo shirt and tread-safe shoes, I was handed the keys to my freedom. You hear the thunder? If you've been itching for driving excitement that's a blend of hot looks and high performance, then Grand Am is your car. Get I remember getting in and being enamored with the new car smell. 
It was really more like refurbished pre-owned car smell, but at this time I could not tell the difference, nor did I care. It was sleek and sporty, gleaming bright white with a spoiler like the steed of conquest. And it had air conditioning, which I cranked all the way up in the Texas heat as I roared down the highway, riding the momentum of thousands of miniature explosions feet from me before parking this beautiful vessel behind the dumpsters of the Megaplex. With a eureka moment, it was settled. My new steed, the Pontiac Grand Am, was Jean-Claude. 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 Jean-Claude Grand Am. In your face, solid excitement. The only thing more impressive than the way it's built is the way it looks. Over the years, Jean-Claude was put through the ringer. I drove him everywhere, often recklessly, scraping curbs, bottoming out on inclines, burning rubber and blowing tires. Oh, yes, the honeymoon period is nice, isn't it? But... Ooh, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't last, does it? N- no. At different times, the plastic holding his side mirrors in place just mysteriously cracked into pieces and fell off while it was sitting in a parking lot. No one hit them. A headlamp socket slowly corroded and began to only emit a dim glow making it look like Jean-Claude was drunkenly winking at oncoming traffic. And as if, by divine intervention, the windows, just like my brothers had, fell into their doors. Did I give you the tape tip, or did you come to that of your own? No, I I had seen that you did the tape thing. I was like, well, I guess I have to do this. Right, that was one of those learn, like, you learned it vicariously. I would never have thought a machine could be imbued with human qualities. My car is bulky. It has a strong personality. In fact, its personality often proves stronger than its motor. Each incline poses a problem and a challenge, but each hill climb offers the rewards of sweet victory. After a year at college, I drove Jean-Claude across the country from Texas to Virginia, where he acquired a coolant leak and a penchant for overheating. A lot of these issues are simply normal wear and tear and are common for Grand Ams and can be fixed relatively easily. The handful of mechanics I brought it to over the years, the few times I had the money to do so, remarked on how long the models would last, how they were well-made cars and they loved to work on them if you took care of them. But the problems were also due to stubbornness. Windows could have been hoisted back up, mirrors formed back into place. But at this point, after years of his service, I had grown to loathe Jean-Claude. The only tenderness I held for him was tied to this nostalgic sense that he had gifted me freedom. But it was slowly decaying into a grievous and begrudging contempt. Like a lot of what I was doing at the time, I would only put in the minimal effort to keep him running. The smallest amount of gas possible, forgetting to change the oil, only putting in coolant when my engine temperature would spike on the interstate and my power steering would lock up. 
By the time I was graduating college, I wouldn't even drive him for months at a time. He just sat in a parking spot in front of my apartment, collecting a patina of dirt and pollen. One particularly hot, sticky, early summer day, I came back home and thought I should go check on Jean-Claude. I looked around the parking lot of my apartment complex, and after a cursory glance, I realized he was nowhere to be found. I thought to myself, Huh. I was just gone. I paced around the lot and remembered where he'd been sitting, so I found the space. Luckily, the spot he'd been in was still empty, so I could see the evidence of his rapturous escape. There was no broken glass from a break-in or scorch marks from a Back to the Future-style time jump. All that remained was a dry patch of asphalt, outlined by discarded oak tree catkins with a pooled green stain of leaked engine coolant in the center like an abandoned murder investigation scene. I assumed it had been sitting there unmoved and dirty for long enough that it must have been reported as abandoned and towed away. Sure enough, the impound lot I had taken countless friends to over the years at college before had it behind the gate. He was even dirtier than I remembered, and the fluorescence in the garage he was penned into made his white paint look gangrenous. At this point, I knew I didn't want Jean-Claude back. So, I went home, grabbed the title my dad had recently given me as a graduation gift, and had my friend drop me off. After a few signatures and a surprisingly quick exchange of funds and documents, Dominion Towing formally took ownership over Jean-Claude Grandam. Like when you have a dog that you have to go get put down, I imagine is, is very much what that felt like. I was automotively bankrupt. You told me we were here to talk about cars. Yeah. But, I mean, don't you think this is more, like, as much as it's about cars, maybe it's also about dad? <sighs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. I rarely called my dad. I saw him even less often, and so he never really had an opportunity to marvel at the blight overtaking his investment. As my father and I's conversations grew fewer and further apart, Jean-Claude's gears rusted, their teeth meeting less and less. He became a mechanical portrait in the closet, aging and decaying in secret. I've gotten to the point now where the car is the story. 
when Jean-Claude was surrendered, I considered that the end of, if not an entire era, a chapter, a big arc of this story. I thought about this too. Um, it was the same thing when he made me take the sticker off on my car. What do you mean? Because mine, mine was like a, it was like a slow, protracted thing. It was not like one moment. So, I mean, in addition to all of the other things, like dad and I, dad and I had a hard time because I was, I was growing up queer in Texas and, um, it took me a long time to come out of the closet. Um, I didn't even like kiss a boy until my freshman year of college. And then it was not long after that until I met somebody and then I came out and that was life changing and so positive. And I remember coming home from college um, that semester and I was driving Hocus the Focus and I had put on a human rights campaign sticker on the rear window of my car. And at the time that was really important to me because marriage equality still hadn't passed in the United States. Um, dad, I was hanging out with him on one of those nights when I was home from college. And I remember we'd had a good time. Um, and then I remember before I went home, he was like, I'll fill up your car with gas. And I thought, Oh, well, that's really nice. I, he doesn't have to do that. And as we we're filling up gas, he noticed that sticker on the back of my car. And he said, I, I know this might be important to you, but that's my car. And I don't believe in the things that that sticker represents. And so I'm going to need you to take it off. And so I was like, okay. And I peeled that sticker off and I hugged him goodnight and drove away. And my relationship with him was never the same. When, when he made me take that sticker off, it was like he was saying, I don't support any of the things that you are. You're, you're not worthy of my unconditional love. My love comes with terms. And I just don't know that a father and son should have to have a contract and I think that's the that's the thing that bothers me the most. I barely remembered that story until now. Um, I don't think I was actually there for this for whatever reason, but um, it makes me wish that I would have been there to say something because because even then. I would have known that that was wrong, that I, I know I would not have been okay with that. But um, I also wonder if I would have had the will or an, the energy to change anything like that or to say something like, would I have thought it would have been worth it in that moment or was it just par for the course? I don't know. Well, here's the thing that I think about is like, like if I could go back and do things differently, like would I, it's more like, should I, did I need to, was it my responsibility to maintain that relationship? 
Yeah, I mean, like, we signed a contract. And there's one side of that contract that was not upheld. But he still wanted to take a ride in the car with us. I mean, to me, it's, it's the fact that I felt like I spent so much time driving around hoping that he'd get in. And he never really did all the way. And maybe that's the difference between our two experiences. But I saw you doing all of that, and I saw him never get in the car, and I was like, well, I guess he doesn't want a ride anywhere. And so I was like, well, there's no need to unlock the doors. Did he ever tell you that he had, he had changed his mind on that subject? Cause, and I say this because I remember specifically one time, um, randomly, he had like called me. He said, you know, by the way, I've, I've been reading about it and I've kind of been thinking about it and I've, I've kind of I've, I've changed my mind. I've sort of come around on that whole thing. And I remember just being like, okay. Because um, he had never really felt the need to like bring that up with me. I was just wondering if he had ever talked to you about that, like, afterward. He's never said that to me. And to uh, honestly, like, to hear you say that, that he's told you that, is kind of shocking. Because I always assumed that everything that he did from that point on in my life was with a sense of... begrudging Hmm. but then he called me this morning out of the blue and the last thing he said to me was call me anytime I think it's scary mostly because I I see so much of myself in in him, you know? Like mom, like mom is always like, oh, you are such like your father. Uh, and I see myself struggling to keep up relationships I should be devoted to. Like we're so similar. It also gives me a bit of compassion too. And and it it took me a long time to realize this like but because i have this like genetic window into the way he thinks um i i see why initiating like an apology or a rebuilding of a relationship or rekindling that would be so tough and intimidating cuz i do the same things and while i felt guilty now it's like a recognition um so i i try to not be as resentful about it as I used to be. Um, And obviously my experience was very different from yours, so that might be easier for me. And I can and still am angry at times, like you said. But it's less of a righteous anger, and it's, it's more of like a focused, driven desire. But, you know, 
I, I kind of hear that in the way that you say these things, whether that's intentional or not. But I, I don't know if, if you feel the, the same way. I caught myself filling a large glass to the top with ice and pouring a <gasps> soda all the way. Yeah. And I was like, I literally like froze in place. And I looked at Ryan and I was like, was it diet? This is my dad. Of course. <laughs> now, it wasn't that Pepsi swill that he drank. How? How? We should have known. Something was off. I don't Something understand was it. Off. I don't understand it. <laughs> Only Guide Me by Surprise is written, produced, and edited by me, Landry Ayers. The music in this story was by Blue Dot Sessions and Kevin McLeod. If you want to hear more stories like this, and maybe some that aren't so much like it, you can subscribe to this feed, and I ask please share it with a friend if you do so. Thanks for listening, and you'll hear more from me soon. <laughs>